thank you once again. Just, I see they've got this light moving over here. I don't know what all that <laughs> music did to that, but uh, it's a rocking. We may have a reputation here before we know it. Okay, just a reminder that there's uh, there are some giving envelopes out in the foyer. Uh, these are for the purpose of those who want a record of your giving. So if you put your money in the envelope and you don't write your name on it, <laughs> you, we haven't got a record. So if yeah, 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 you don't have to fill your address out every time. Once we have it the first time, you just put your name on it as long as we know who it is. And, of course, a check doesn't have to be in an envelope because we'll have a record of it there. So if you're putting cash in, that's the purpose of this, uh, so that there can be a record of your giving, then uh, make sure you put your name on it because otherwise we won't know for sure. And on those cards that you're filling out, I think we have one here. No, that's not it. Here's some blank ones right here. It doesn't tell you anything on it other than put your name and address there. But uh, if you make sure you put your phone and, and even your email address would be, be helpful. And um, hopefully I'll later, as I get this thing rolling here, uh, I'm going to build a Community Baptist Church uh, email list so I can send out emails to you from time to time. And uh, maybe help keep things, uh, keep you up to date on what's happening and things like that. Uh, one of those that I would, if I had that list now, that I would notify you of is to remind you, Easter Sunday, we plan on having a communion service that day. Uh, so uh, just keep that in mind. Also, with the idea of email, um, the guys back here, which happen to be my two sons-in-law, uh, have conspired to develop a web page for the church. Um, so they have a sample of it ready to look at after church. And they've got the computer set up back there in the sound room. So if you'd like to stop by there after church and have a look at it, have a little demo to see what it looks like and so on, uh, it'll give you an idea of, of what's there. The goal and purpose, what would we do with it? Uh, would be, first of all, just to simply make yourself available to the community to know that we're here uh, and that we can be found on the web. Of course, there would be other things there, too. You can put sermons on there, and, of course, one of my first goals would be to get some of uh, Royce's sermons online so that you can be able to go back and listen to those and, I guess, whatever format you want to do. You'll just be there to listen to or download or whatever. Uh, we'll list uh, events of the church there, prayer requests. Um, haven't got that all worked out yet, how to do that. Uh, what else was on there? Hurry up, Andy, tell me. I can't remember what else is on there. Uh, but there are other things on there. Uh, oh, a picture. <laughs> uh, there'll be several pictures on there, actually. They've already got it set up, pictures of the musicians and uh, deacon and... I don't know, everything. So it, it's pretty fancy. It looks real nice. So I want you to go by and look at it. And then it's not an expensive thing either. It's $45 a year. That's to buy the what they call the domain name and then also to rent the space now, out there and wherever that's at. You know, you, you rent it. You have to pay somebody money for it, <laughs> as you might expect. And uh, But anyway, we'll be out there, and people will know we're here, and it, it can serve as a ministry. I mean, it's there for the guy across the street as much as it is for somebody on the other side of the world. They can access it just as easily as, as you and I could. So that's one other reason, and one of the, to me one of the chiefest reasons that we'd want to do that would to be to make these things available to uh, a wide spectrum of people. Okay, I think that I've covered the things. Well, I haven't either. i got a couple of things actually I want to mention. We talked about these last Wednesday night, uh, is that, once my tax season is over, uh, which would be April 15th, it's not over, but the hard part's done, and, and the rush uh, of it is over with. We plan to start a Wednesday night Bible study, and um, that I say after April 15th, it'll probably be sometime near the first of uh, Wednesday. Once I get my breath, Wednesday, the first of May. Once I get my breath back, 
and uh, hopefully we'll have a, something more to announce to you just a little later on so you'll know what's coming down the pike in that. Also, one of the things that was uh, mentioned, this was several months ago now, back when we were first talking about uh, and entertaining the idea of me coming to this church was uh, getting back to a missions program and being able to support missions. And, um, of course, being a missionary, I'm very interested in that myself and, and uh, would like to see that happen too. So just so you'll be thinking about that, uh, what I would like to do even just now, uh, even though we have no set program in place or, or plan, uh, for those who would like to help us get it started um, and you want to give something extra over and above what you're readily doing now and begin a fund for a missions program, then we would like to start building that. And that will be a way for you to give to the work of missions. And at a point in time when uh, we get some more direction as to exactly who, uh, uh, then you know we'll We'll make that known as well. And, of course, what I would like for you to do, be doing in the meantime is praying about that, that God would show us exactly who we should invest our funds in and how we should go about doing that to make sure the message gets sent forth and around the world. One of my chief uh, requests in that regard would be for the Lord to give us a missionary in Israel. Uh, I think that would probably be at the top of most everybody's list. Uh, but for someone to be preaching the kingdom gospel in uh, Israel would be a wonderful thing, and I'd like to see that happen. So with those things in mind, you just remember that and uh, take them before the Lord, and um, I think the Lord will give us the direction in it that we want uh, because it's, it's not what we are desiring uh, of our, in and of ourselves, and it's nothing of the flesh. This is all by way of ministry. Uh, it's all by way of our means and ability to serve Christ here in this place uh, and to be a witness for him around the world. Okay, having said that, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. We've been talking some about the church, and I want to continue with that today and possibly another Sunday or two, I'm not sure yet, but at least for today. In Ephesians chapter 5, we've, we looked at this passage, and it's a central passage regarding the church. And we've briefly alluded to also the church in respect to um, the body of Christ, and that's what's dealt with here in this passage as well as other passages. We've talked about the ecclesia, which is the term, the Greek term used to describe it, the church. And it refers merely to an assembly, a gathering together. And we talked about how within the uh, Greek city-states, when the citizens were gathered together, be it a few or many, that was called an ecclesia. That was a gathering. It didn't mean necessarily every single citizen of the state was there. But as long as they were assembled in some form or fashion, uh, gathered together. That was the idea of ecclesia. Those who were called or summoned to appear and represent the city-state in whatever fashion or, or responsibility they had. Then we also saw, in the, as this word was used in the New Testament, of course it was used in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. It was also used of an assembly there. We talked about the uh, congregation or the assembly that met at the foot of Mount Sinai where they covenanted with the Lord after having come out of Egypt. After having come out of Egypt. Then they assembled, and there it was every person. Every single person who was a member of the nation of Israel assembled there, and it was called an ecclesia. Then in the New Testament, we saw where Jesus said in Matthew uh, chapter 16, I will build my ecclesia. And that we saw was being a very significant thing because when he said, I will build my ecclesia, that stood out then from all other ecclesia that existed in that day or could possibly exist. And there were many because many assemblies could uh, meet. They could be summoned in various fashions to meet together for a purpose, uh, whatever it might be, governmental or religious. 
And here Jesus says, I will build mine, ecclesia. So it had a distinctive content to that ecclesia, to that assembly, to that gathering of people, this one that Jesus spoke of. Then we saw, well, we, we, we somewhat focused on the idea then uh, as the church was formed in Acts chapter 2, the idea of the local assembly of believers. When they gathered together, it was called an ecclesia. I want us to look at a couple of those here this morning. Look in uh, Philemon, if you would. Philemon. Now, that's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Just before you get to the book of Hebrews. That's a very simple verse. But it gives us the exact idea of what we're talking about here. In verse 2, he says, And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, or to the ecclesia in thy house. So here was a letter Paul was addressing with reference to these men here and to the ecclesia that met in their house. Now that might have been six or seven or eight people. It could have been 10 or 15. It may be as many as 20 or 30. It could have been any number. But they met in a particular house, and it was called an ecclesia. It was the gathering of God's people in someone's home. Then look at uh, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 15. Now, (coughs) of course, we're coming down to the end of the letter, and as Paul doing his usual thing is addressing some people individually by name, And he says uh, in verse 14, Luke, the the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church which is in his house. And so these were particular individuals where the church, the the, the ecclesia, met in someone's home. Now, James chapter 5. When those people would meet in those homes... They would be just much like us. They had people who were sick. And they had people that requested prayer for various uh, infirmities. And in chapter 5, in verse 13, James says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the ecclesia. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So here in this particular setting, this ecclesia, there was a multiple of elders. And if he had a need for prayer, in this particular instance being sick, then he was to call for those elders to come and pray over him and anoint him in view of his, his sickness, his illness. So we see this in a very concise, compact, local setting just like we meet here today. Then we saw, and we won't take the time to go back and look at this, but in Acts chapter 9, we looked at the idea that, the well, actually starting in chapter 8 of Acts, we saw the church was persecuted and scattered. That is, the church in Jerusalem was scattered out throughout the surrounding area of Judea, up into Galilee, and then throughout all the area in northern Israel of Samaria. And then later on in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and it says, And the church, the ecclesia, that is the one from Acts 8 that had been scattered abroad, had rest. So we saw a wider use of that idea of ecclesia, moving out from the local setting in Jerusalem and moving out to a broader area of all those that were scattered throughout Judea, Galilee, Samaria, and so on. Then we want to look at this morning the idea of the, the church or the ecclesia as a metaphor, a figure of speech, something that is used to describe something, of course, that we don't or we cannot physically lay our eyes on. You and I would use a metaphor in an instance like that because if we're trying to convey an idea to somebody, 
If we want to get them to understand something and we're having trouble, we're struggling, we lack the terms or the, or the adequate words to use, then we might refer to a metaphor or a figure of speech and say, well, wait a minute, it's like this, it looks like this or something, and you describe something else that would convey to them the idea of what the reality you're trying to express. So you use something that is not the real thing to describe the reality. So when we talk about a metaphor, we're talking about the word ecclesia uh, and the metaphors associated with that to describe it. And one of those that Paul uses is this word body. And we also saw earlier, we referred to it briefly, it's uh, another metaphor is that of a building. It's a structure. It is something that's being built on a foundation. But we talked also about the body. And we talked about how it's fitted together and the joints and the connecting tissue and so on. And the fact that it's, it's a, a smooth functioning unity. But yet, we don't physically lay eyes on that. We cannot see this in operation. So Paul uses this metaphor of a body and how our bodies are, are jointed together and fit together in order that it might function and carry out its purpose. So we want to look at this in a little bit, uh, this whole idea. Basically here in chapter 5 of Ephesians and verses 22 through 33, a very common passage. So let's, let's read that passage though here. He says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their own wives, or their wives, as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his, uh, of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, there is a, a lot there, um, and the Lord was even showing me things right up till the time I was walking in here, and I was trying to look up something in another translation to see what it said, uh, and, boy, I just had to quit. Uh, it's just loaded. But all I want to do here is try to lay a foundation and establish for us just the idea what the Lord is speaking to us concerning this church, this body, and what it means for us what it means for us individually as believers in Christ, and then what it means for us corporately as a church, as a local body or a local church. So first of all, I just want to say that what it is not. It is not the earthly body of Christ or to say it another way, it is not the, the, well, let me back up and say, just as Christ came to earth and took on a body of flesh, which we call the incarnation, he was enfleshed with a body of flesh. Some teach that the body of Christ, because of this metaphor here, that it is nothing more than a continuation of the body of Christ on earth, so that Christ is now gone to heaven but the church represents his body and continues here on earth. Now, you might better associate that with the Roman Catholic Church. That is what they teach, that the church is the incarnation of Christ on earth. Consequently, 
If you think that through, then you will understand and know why the Roman church teaches that there is no salvation outside the church. Because when Paul speaks about being in Christ, they understand that to being the same as being in the church. And to be in the church is to obtain salvation. Because being in Christ means to obtain salvation. Consequently, if you are not in the church, then you can't be saved. That is why when you see this worldwide cry for churches to come together and unite under one banner and one head, you see the Roman church standing aloof from that. And they're very reluctant because of that doctrine. They won't compromise that. That is a teaching that they hold to. Not only do they just hold to it, it is the core belief of the entire Roman church system. And so if they were to compromise that, everything about Roman Catholicism would would fall apart. So they hold with tenaciousness to the idea that to be in Christ means to be in the church, in the body of Christ on earth, and therefore that's where salvation is to be found. Now, of course, we don't believe that. And that's what I'm going to talk about here somewhat just this morning. But first of all, let's, well, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. How is a person placed in the church? How does he get to be in the church to begin with? Does it require, necessitate walking down an aisle and raising your hand and say, I'm, I, want to, I want to make a, uh, a pledge this morning. I want to join this church and unite with them, uh, this body of believers and so on. What does it require? Well, the Lord tells us here in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. He says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. A body. You are baptized into a body. And it is the work of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit does this work of placing us in this body. So that's how you become the member. And he says, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. Now, of course, we already looked uh, back in Ephesians uh, about how the Lord has broken down that middle wall of partition and he's made of the two, the Jew and the Gentile, one new man in Christ. So both Jew and Gentile then, being one new man in Christ, then are baptized by the Spirit into this one body. And he says, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So there are many members in this one body. And the main thing we want to see here, it is the work of the Holy Spirit of God to place us in that body. And, of course, that comes about by responding to the gospel, believing the good news that was proclaimed, and then accepting and receiving Christ. Um, so when, when he talks about the, the church being an extension of the, of the incarnation, you know, in the Roman church, then, the emphasis, you see, is on church relationship. That is, when you deal with a Roman Catholic individual, the question is, for them, what is your relationship to the church? But as we look here and understand the church and the body, as we will see as we develop this, too, is it's not a question of what is your relationship to the church, what is your relationship to Christ? What is your relationship to the head of the body? Which is another metaphor used to explain, or it's an additional, it's a part of the body, in explaining what this is that we are baptized into by the Holy Spirit of God. So the body is a metaphor. He's not speaking of a, of a literal physical body here. And... Um, you know, as we said, a metaphor is just something then that he uses to explain something else, to say this is like unto this or that, and he is the head of the body. Now, I'll turn back just a page or two to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and you might notice, just happen to, happen to note that 
almost all the references we're looking at are dealing in Ephesians and Colossians. That's because these are the two epistles where the Lord has chosen to reveal through Paul these things concerning the body and the church. So he says in chapter 20, or 1, verse 22, he says there that he hath put all things under his feet, that is, under Christ's feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now that's just very plain, evident language. The church, which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. That is simply to say, all things are to be found in Christ. And to find all things in Christ, he's placed him as head over the body, of which we are a member. So he simply, he's the head. He, is, he occupies the preeminent position. Now turn over to chapter 4, verse 15. Same book. Chapter 4, verse 15. And there he says, But speaking the truth in love, uh, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. He is the head. And then just uh, back over to chapter 5, verse 23, the passage we just were reading in, he says, even as Christ is the head of the church. Again, he states it in very explicit and very plain language. He is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. So you see this relationship here ecclesia body or if we use the greek terms ecclesia and soma which is the word for body but it's the assembly the people gathered only here we're looking at it as a metaphor of something that's not visible so they're not physically gathered in one place and yet he still calls them an ecclesia he still calls them an assembly one person, uh, a Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, uh, he, he translated that as being or, uh, or understands this whole idea of, as being an unassembled assembly, if that were possible. Uh, an unassembled assembly. It's this great assembly of people just like, just like the scattered church of Jerusalem was, which was scattered throughout Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and so on. They were not physically assembled together. Here in this metaphor, they're not assembled together either, and yet they're called an assembly. In order to explain that, to make sense of it, Paul uses this body metaphor to help us bring it together, to think of it as a body. And we also looked then already at how the, the, he explains the body with the joints and the, mar, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, connecting tissues and so on making this body function together. But that's not our purpose and point here. We're looking at the head. We're looking at the head of the body and its relationship then to the body. The head in relationship to the body. Now, in verse uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and we need to turn over there and look at a couple other passages. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, there Paul says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. He occupies the most preeminent place and position of all. As a matter of fact, if you continue with that verse, he says, Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence? He has the most prominent position. And this whole idea of being the firstborn from the dead does not have anything to do with the fact that he simply was the first one. As you well know, firstborn has to do with a place and position. That's the prominent idea behind the word firstborn. Just uh, as a firstborn in a family. Or primarily, if we would look back to uh, the ancient nation of Israel in the Old Testament and look at the progression of the kings throughout their history... We see there the idea of firstborn son and succession and right to the throne. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus with Israel in Egypt, you saw the same thing there with, with the pharaohs. The firstborn son had the right to be the next pharaoh. But, of course, the Lord kind of messed things up there when he 
delivered the people, and they refused, and he delivered his people from, from Egypt. And when that death angel passed over the land, every firstborn son was slain. Well, don't you think that brought some chaos? Don't you think that brought some ruin to an entire nation? Not just with the government, beginning with the Pharaoh on down, but with every individual family and the passing on of their inheritance and the rights of family ownership. But yet he delivered Israel, and then he calls Israel his firstborn son. Here, in this passage, Christ is the firstborn. Firstborn from the dead. To be firstborn from the dead speaks of life. And so then we again, we see as we, you know, as he expands this whole idea of this imagery here, we see then that not only is he in the prominent place, but because being firstborn from the dead, his resurrection speaks of the life that he offers. So not only is he the controlling feature, not only is the head the preeminent position, but he's the one who sustains it with life. In this case, in this metaphor, the head sustains the body. He's the giver of life to the body, the ecclesia, the church. Now, um, um, in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, and we'll, in my Bible, you've got to turn the page to read that. You may not have to. I hear pages going, though, so you do. In in verse 19, he says, And not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment ministered and knit together, increases with the increase of God. And not holding the head from which all the body. You see, again, this... this well, here we have emphasized the unity of it all. He talks again, he talks about the joints and the bands, all having nourishment. So not only is the giver of the life, but he supplies the nourishment. He sustains the body. He gives it life, and then he also supplies nourishment to sustain it. You know, in other words, when we're born, we have life. That's one thing. But it's another thing to sustain that body by providing nourishment for it, to keep it going. And so Christ does that for the body as well. So we see this idea of the vitality of it. He is the source of life for the body. Having nourishment, they ministered, or it is ministered to. And, um, you know, we, uh, let's see, where is that? If I remember, this whole idea of having ministered is present tense. It means to do so on a continuous basis. And as a matter of fact, if you'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, you'll see the same idea over there. And I want us to take a look at that because you know, Paul gives us a beautiful contrast here to help us explain or understand exactly what Christ has done for the church. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. And that word love there is aorist tense. That's point in time, which if you were to have a, if we had a board up here to draw on and we wanted to illustrate the whole idea of aorist tense, we would just draw a dot up here. It just says, at a point in time, Christ loved the church. Now, of course, if we were to go back and examine all that the Lord has to say about that, we could all, it would ultimately all go back to the cross in that Christ died for the church. He uh, purchased it, the Scripture says, with his own blood in, in Acts chapter 20, and so on. So it is a point-in-time thing. Christ loved the church. But if you come down to verse uh, 29... For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes, nourisheth, excuse me, and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. And nourishes and cherishes there are present tense. They are a continuous action. It is an ongoing thing. Well, that's what we need. It's one thing for the Lord, for, uh, the Lord to have loved us 
and purchased us and redeemed us, it's another thing for him to make provision for us on a regular, continuing, ongoing basis. Now, I don't know if I should bring that up or not, but I guess you've heard the, the old story, you know, about the guy that wouldn't tell his wife that he loved her, and he said, well, hey, I told you when we got married I loved you, and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> but it's the idea that he loves her, and then he continues to do so by nourishing and cherishing that which he has joined himself to, that which he has loved, that which he has devoted himself to. Now, to understand that even more fully, then we have to look at this word for loved here. This word for agape love, as opposed to the kind of affectionate love, which basically, for, all, for our experiences, that kind of love is something that happens to us. We don't cause it to happen. That is to say, guy meets girl, girl meets guy, you know, they get googly eyes, um, they got these warm, fuzzy feelings for each other, and it, you know, it just happens. You didn't cause it to happen. You looked across the room, as the songwriter said, and boy, I mean, just like that, it was love at first sight. I mean, you melted and she melted, and I mean, it was all over, and everybody can see it on your face. It just happens. That's one kind of love. That's an affectionate kind of love, and it's, an, it's something that happens to us. There is another way you could express that. You might say it's like um, um, uh, a filial love, the phileo love. It's like a brother and a sister or a mother and a daughter. There's a, there's a love there that exists simply because of the relationship. You didn't have anything to do with that. You were born into a family. You love your mother. You love your father. It happened to you. Agape love is a love of the will. This love chooses to love first. See, people with an affectionate kind of love can fall in love, as it were, and then the decision-making process comes later. In agape love, the will comes first. It's, it chooses to do which is what Christ did from the halls of eternity, the Scriptures tell us. Before the foundation of the world, before the ages were ever formed, this was determined. Christ determined to love the church and to give himself for it. The sustaining love then comes after that. And it all emanates from the act of the will that the Lord had for his church, for his assembly. This assembly, this ecclesia, which he says, I will build. I will build my assembly. And he laid his love upon that and gave himself for it. Well, that's a lot to me, especially when you consider, he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, you see, that's, a, that's an act of the will. That is something we choose to do in spite of anything else. And so you know what that does? See, affectionate love puts this focus upon the object in which you're, you're focused on. But if I choose to do so, it takes the focus away from the object itself because, it, in other words, whatever the object is, if I like it, if it's good, if it benefits me, if it pleases me, then I'll love that person or whatever it is. If not, then I won't. Agape love doesn't have the object itself in view. It just simply says, I will love that person no matter what, no matter how they turn out, no matter what they might say to me or anything else. I have set my love upon them. So Christ has done for the church. And, of course, we know the church has been very displeasing to him. If we just look around us at the church today, we don't see anything by representation, or maybe I should say very little by way of representation, of what the Lord would desire to see in his church, at least not as it's described for us here in his word. As a matter of fact, if we continue on with that whole idea, then we see in uh, verse, well, look in verse 27. 
in doing this, well, actually, better back, might as well just get all of it there, verse 26, you see a purpose statement stated from the very beginning. He says, that, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And then you see that he might present it to himself a glorious church or an honorable church, or as one translator put it, that he might present it to himself a church of glory. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be. Do you see that he's presenting to us here an ideal? This is the ideal of what the church should be. Without spot, without wrinkle. Holy, he says, and without blemish. Then verse 28, so ought men to love their wives. In other words, as the church should be, so men ought to do to their wives or be towards their wives. Now, having said that, look at let's turn over to Colossians. Paul didn't reveal everything or write about everything concerning the church in one letter, so we've got to go look at all that he had to say to get the idea here. Notice what he says here in verse 22. Colossians 1, and look at verse 22. And he says there, well, you better read verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh. For what purpose? To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now, that's not a period at the end of the sentence there. Is it? It continues on. Verse 23 says, If. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled. If. You be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, made a minister. This whole purpose of presenting us holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight is directly connected to how we follow Christ and our obedience to him, our participation as members of this body, members of this ecclesia, whether we walk obedient to him or not. Now, if you'll look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, not too far back. And there, I want us to grasp the concept or the idea that, that, you know, that Paul is, is putting forth there regarding the, the church at Corinth, which you know have been to, was, was not the prettiest church around in terms of their, their character and their quality and so forth. But he says in chapter 11 and verse 1, Would to God you could bear with me a little while in my folly. And indeed bear with me, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband. Did I, that, and again we have that purpose statement there, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's what he wants to do, folks. That's his desire. This is not a promise that this is going to happen for every person who is a member of the body, who is a participant in Christ. This is his goal. He's representing the ideal here of what Paul wants to see happen. And it will happen as we walk obediently to him, as we walk in subjection to the head, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that word espoused, some translate that betrothed you, but the interesting thing here is it comes from a word that means joint. It's like I have joined you to Christ. I have joined you to one husband for a purpose. In order that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, with all of that in mind, 
let's just look way ahead here to the book of Revelation in chapter 19. And here a very familiar passage, I would suppose, for most of us at least. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, Paul here is um, speaking concerning the bride, the second coming of Christ. And he says there, Let me be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints, or the righteous deeds of the saints, the righteous acts of the saints. It's plural. It doesn't mean our justification righteousness, but the justification righteousness that comes from obedience that James talks about in chapter 2. It's talking about that which we have clothed ourselves with. It is talking about the bride who has made herself ready, prepared herself, just as uh, Jerry dealt with in Ruth chapter 2 and 3, as Ruth prepared herself to go down to the threshing floor, which was a picture of the judgment seat, to meet Boaz. And so there Ruth prepared herself, washed herself, anointed herself, and made herself ready. And here, this bride that is being presented to Jesus, well, here it's already uh, taken place. She's made herself ready, prepared for her groom to be married. And she's dressed in fine linen, clean and white. Why? Because she prepared herself. She readied herself for that moment when she could put those clothes on and, and be what Christ had called her to be. Now that's, again, that's speaking of you and I. You see, the, the church is spoken of here in two ways. Um, we looked at verse 27 of um, Ephesians chapter 5 that he might present it. He was speaking there of the church. He was speaking corporately of the body of Christ, that he might present it. But then over in Colossians, when we looked at Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, it says that he might present you. You see, he deals with us not only corporately as a body, as an ecclesia, as a, an assembly of God's people, but he deals with us also individually. It's our individual responsibility that he calls upon us as a member of the body, and by the way, a gifted member of the body, as we didn't take time to look at in, in 1 Corinthians 12 when we were there, that every member of the body has a gift. Every member of the body is equipped, as he says in Ephesians chapter 4. We are gifted. We are equipped and not only that, he has given gifts to the ecclesia, to the assembly, to the church, in order that we could be built up as a building or that we could increase and grow as a body and be functioning members of the body. Functioning members that he would bless us for the purpose of growth, for the purpose of maturity, for the purpose of being quality materials in the construction of the building, so that when judgment time comes and is passed through the fire, what's gold and silver and precious stone will remain. What is done here at Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7 then would allow us to be dressed in clean linen, fine linen, white, to be presented to Christ as, as a chaste virgin, that which will be well-pleasing unto him. And there are many things we can do, by the way, that are well-pleasing, and I plan to address some of those things that the Scripture says. Practical things that you and I can do to be well-pleasing to the Lord, to have Him look down on your life with favor, with blessing, and say, I'm very, you know, it's just like the Lord would be sitting here and saying, I'm very pleased with that person. Or you know in Hebrews chapter 2, it says there, He's, with certain ones, he says he's not ashamed to call them brethren. How would you like it if the Lord could walk in here and say, Hey, folks, this is one of my brothers right here, and he'd put his arm around you 
And I just want you all to know that. Wouldn't that be a satisfying thing? Wouldn't that be the, a glorious thing for the Lord to say that about you and me? Or, or um, boy, the passage is escaping me now where the Lord, where, where God himself says, I am not ashamed to be called their God. You know, many of us would claim God in heaven, the God of the Bible, as our God. But, you know, for some folks, that doesn't make God feel very proud of them because they don't act like it. They don't live like it. So he's not pleased with them. But I'm just saying this to encourage us all that if we do these things, if we do these things that are well-pleasing, he is very satisfied with us. He is very pleased with us. And if he were here, he would be glad to put his arm around you before this entire fellowship and say, this is one of my brothers or one of my sisters, and I'm glad to do so. So by way of encouragement, let me just say that as a member of the body of Christ, as a person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, you have all the confidence in the world to come before the Lord to know that he will hear you and that he will bless you, that he will answer your prayer. Maybe not according to the way you want it, but he will answer your prayer and fulfill all his promises with respect to the body and one day present you as a chaste bride to his son, Jesus Christ. Now let's pray. Father, with great joy and gladness in our hearts, we, we just lift up our soul and praise to you in thanksgiving because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and that as individual members of the body, we have the, the privilege and the joy to call upon you, to claim the promises that you've given us, to rest in the fact that uh, Christ has done these things for us and that he as our head operates and functions there to minister on our behalf, to nourish us, to sustain us, to provide uh, all that we need to live a successful Christian life, to be able to come with boldness and confidence at the end of our life or to the judgment seat of Christ and, and to know that there, when all is said and done, we will have a standing before you and you will welcome us and receive us. I pray that you would do that for us today and for each one who, is, who might be here who is uh, hurting or, or doubting or does not possess that kind of confidence, Lord, that you would just enrich their hearts and their soul and strengthen them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. We want to just give a word of invitation. If there are those here or anyone here that uh, would like to unite with this church in any uh, sense, that is you by letter, by baptism, by profession of faith, whatever it might be, we just want to give you the opportunity to do that today. Oh, yes. Where are we? Oh, i got to put my glasses back on. 366, I surrender all. Stand as we're sitting.
Well, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Uh, Larry and Kathy Henderson uh, come to join our fellowship this morning. <coughs> Ooh, them little thingies stuck together and I got more than one. I think I got five or six. And uh, they come, uh, of course, uh, they'll be transferring uh, membership uh, from Grace Baptist where we came. So uh, we're glad to have them here. And if you would... Um, just come down and welcome this morning. I know you've all probably shaken their hands a couple hundred times, uh, but one more time will be extra special this morning. It'll be different. All right, let's pray. Lord, dismiss us with your blessings today. We thank you for uh, this privilege also that we have to not only assemble here this morning, but also to depart from this place as witnesses for Christ, as those who bear forth a testimony And I pray that as we go forth that we would indeed be a witness to those about us and we would share the good news of Christ. Bless Larry and Kathy as they come to unite with this fellowship that we would not only be a blessing to them, but I know, Father, they'll be a blessing to us in how you've gifted them and and used them on a regular basis. For all that you've done for us in Christ, we give you our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.